On this Byron Lazine podcast, I had the ridiculous opportunity to sit down with Sean Black, one of the original founders of Trulia. They sold it, obviously, to Zillow years after he founded it, and he is now the founder and CEO of Knock, a company that many think is very disruptive in real estate. If you're an agent, I think that you'll find Knock is quite interesting, and they're working with a lot of agents. He explains that and where the industry is headed from someone who's got a lot of experience in the prop tech side of things and certainly going deep on the agent angle in many different ways. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Here with Sean Black, the founder and CEO of Knock, and you just got off the stage at T360, so I you did. should be warmed up for this. Yeah, um, no, I have a lot of coffee in me, so I got <laughs> another half hour to go for sure. Awesome. No, so I, I really want to get into all of the Knock stuff, but just give us a brief background. <laughs> you were a founder at Trulia before acquired at Zillow. You've got an extensive career in prop tech and mm -hmm. obviously in real estate now, so just give us the background. Yeah, I've been in uh, I've been in this business for twenty plus years, uh, which dates me a little bit. But yeah, we were my co-founder uh, Jamie and I were both on the founding team at Trulia um, since two thousand. You know, when we started in two thousand and five. Um, obviously, that company ultimately went uh, public and then was acquired by Zillow, which was our arch nemesis at the time. Now we're all one big family. Yeah. Um, you know, look, our, I, I talked on stage a little bit about the sort of where we are in what my co-founder Pete used to say is the evolution of real estate going online. He used to say sometimes revolutions come in evolutions. And I think we're in the third revolution of real estate going online. We call it the transaction revolution. Yep. What Trillian Zillow pioneered was uh, was really the information revolution. And you know, the early 2000s were just like the digital revolution taking very schematic offline listings and MLS stuff you know, um, uh, classified ads, putting them online. Um, so we like to think we started seven years ago and pioneered um, the the transaction revolution along with iBuyers like Opendoor. And, and our goal is to, you know, make the real estate transaction liquid and certain and convenient and make it look like, you know, the stock market where it's efficient marketplace with lots of information. And I think on stage you said about five years, you're hoping within the next five, we will have solved that problem like the information problem is absolutely solved like yeah. zillow i call them the google of real estate yeah. you're gonna yeah. you're gonna look up a property you're gonna zillow it just like you're yeah. gonna google something so truly about five yes. years or truly it, <laughs> absolutely yeah, it's truly still there yeah um so you believe in the next five years we'll solve that problem? So, so I think that, you know, we, we're a lender. Like, we are your rich uncle, right? We give you and uh, therefore your agent the power to go out as a call cash offer. We're giving you all the money you need to go buy a house without all the contingencies. We just give you the money and then we do the financing after the fact, right? Mm -hmm. And that was, a that was um, you know, a wedge, basically. It's a, it's a way to digitize the transaction and force people into the future because as the lender, we're producing the vast majority of the documents around the transaction and the ones that we're not, the contract or the offer, or the appraisal, or the inspection all come to us because we're releasing funds. And that empowers us to be able to take all that data from multiple different sources and push it into the phone for the agent and for the consumer. So the consumer knows for the first time ever, by the way, exactly what's happening on both sides of the transaction if they're buying and selling with the home swap. Uh, and they know who's doing what next. And they're not getting, they're not having to call their agent. And the agent then doesn't have to call their lender and figure out what's all going on. It's a daisy chain. We're all in the app. We're pushing, notifying. Everything that, that happens is happening real time, getting pushed to the consumer and the agent. We can collaborate. 
in the app. And so if the, the consumer wants to know what's, what's going on with the loan application, they could just ask in the app and the agent also sees the conversation. So I think in that we are going to get finally, I think the entire transaction on the phone and for sure, I think the next eight years. So by the end of this uh, decade, but I think the next five is pretty plausible. Um, I just think, look, if it's, a, it's not just a COVID pushing adoption of innovation, things, stupid things like e-signature, which title companies and, and, and lenders wouldn't accept before they right. forced, you know, wet ink and innovation was people, mobile title, people <laughs> like guys coming to you in a car, uh, at closing. That was innovation, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> COVID forced finally the last mile of the COVID, transaction. COVID helped us push that online, right? An adoption, mass adoption yeah. of technology. Um, so thank God. And now you have coupled with that the generational shift over the next five to seven years. The biggest buyers are the you know the younger generation of of home buyer, and yeah. they're not only want it to be on their phone, they demand it to be. They're doing everything else in their life, buying everything else, ordering cars, buying cars, buying food on their phone, and they're not going to understand why they can't have that same convenience and transparency. So I think the culmination of like the adoption of that COVID really sort of fast forwarded and the generational shift will for sure put the whole transaction on the this phone. This sounds a lot like what Rich and everybody at Zillow <clears throat> keeps talking about super app, super app, where everything's living in one yeah. place. These are obviously two different apps that we're talking about because you're talking about knock technology. Yeah. They're talking about theirs. So is everybody on the same race to build this all in one experience? Maybe. I, I I think there's a lot. There's certainly a lot. You know, I think we it needs to happen. The question is, what is the right um, solution? You know, we took a very specific approach of the lending is the keystone because without the money, the transaction doesn't happen. Yeah. Everybody's contingent on that financing happening. How do you classify that? Power buyer? Yeah, not I mean, an like buyer, we didn't call so. a power buyer. You know, we weren't, I said on stage, we weren't, we didn't set out seven years ago to be a lender. We set out to fix the very broken real estate transaction, specifically for sellers. We had solved it for buyers at Trillian Zillow, but sellers didn't benefit at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so we thought about how do we solve the liquidity issue that people have so we can increase the velocity of transactions in the market. So, you know, we sort of went at it from uh, let's make all buyers cash buyers. We did that very differently a couple of years ago. We were buying houses for customers, the new house and then moving them in and then selling their old home for them and then applying the equity. We've removed all that friction and we just lend them all the money up front. They put it in their name, they're paying their mortgage, we're helping them with the repairs of their old home. So like we took a very specific route. Open Door obviously took a different route, which was to buy the house and be the end all be all. Zillow tried that for a minute, right? I, I think the perspective that like you need to be the broker, the agent, the, the mortgage and own the home is pretty extreme. But the ethos was the same. You know, Zillow's coming at it having the benefit of traffic and consumers. Sure. Um, you know, I think I remember when Rich launched offers, Spencer actually, um, that he said, you know, good luck to anybody to acquire customers. That's expensive. We have however many hundreds of millions of users. And you think, okay, they had the advantage. Didn't matter. They also had this estimate, yeah. <laughs> right? It didn't matter in the 63% of home shoppers are using one of their apps. Zill yeah. Zillow Trulia. Yeah. So the question is like, can they, are they uniquely qualified to put it all into one place? They had dot loop. I think that was an, a, an attempt to be in the transaction itself. Unfortunately, it's just, it's a paid application. So by default, it's going to be a minority of, yep. of users. Um, but I do think everyone's trying to figure out for the consumer, as Rich said, uh, how to make this thing simple, certain, convenient, and digital is the way to do that, right? Like it is not at all transparent for a seller. Right now you show up at a closing table and you find out about a lot of the fees, including title, 
in the head, HUD documents. And you're like, oh my God, what is this? And you're, it's almost like, it's the point of no return. You can't be like, I'm not paying this. Yeah. <laughs> well, then you're not going to close on that new house. And by the way, your truck full of all your belongings is sitting in the, in the parking lot, right? So the knock on knock, if I can make mm. a terrible um, dad joke there, yeah, yeah. has been in, in the beginning has been that they're trying to eliminate the agent, which is the same kind of, you know, fear that the industry had with Trulia and yep. Zillow for a number of years. You've veered far away from, quote unquote, trying to eliminate the agent from the transaction. Talk about that. Yeah, I don't know that we ever wanted to eliminate the agent. We had in-house agents. So what we were trying to figure out early on, uh, one, we also got confused with iBuyers because no one knew what any of that was. By the way, power buy only existed like a year ago. It's actually a helpful uh, bucket because at least it doesn't put us in the iBuying bucket. It doesn't put you in that open door category. Yeah. And then these people started to slowly understand the nuance and the difference. You know, look, we just thought, no, the agent is critical and central to the transaction, but we also needed to control the experience to build the technology and figure out what parts can get automated and what can't. Um, and so we had in-house agents. I think it's at, at, at our highest or peak, we had maybe like 17 in-house agents, but it wasn't because we wanted to disintermediate the agent because um, we had agents, it was because we were trying to figure out how to build tech and we needed to own the entire experience to understand all the pieces and understand how far we could take it and and where we would like defer to the agent and the, their, for their local expertise. So even early on, when we had in-house agents, we never wanted feet on the ground the way say Glenn does with, with Redfin because that doesn't scale. Mm -hmm. um, so what we did was even though we had our in own in-house agents, we never took anyone on a home tour. What we did is we built an agent network, which was Redfin agents and, you know, not Redfin agents because they're W2, but 1099 agents from Remax or, okay. you know, so they were compensated 1099. Yeah. So they would, we would pay them per task. So it'd be like, hey, we need you to go take a customer to see six houses on a Sunday. We had already mapped it out. All you need to do is drive them around. Um, you may be a Century 21 agent, but you're just getting paid to do that service where you're not getting any part of the commission. And we built a network of agents doing that, um, pretty extensive actually in five different markets. And they were all would beg, beg us. It was, we were then doing the trade-in, which was the version where we were buying the new house and then mm -hmm. giving it back to the customer. Uh, and they were all asking us for, um, could we do the trade-in for our own customers? And we couldn't figure out the economics because we were monetizing then through the commission. We weren't a lender yet. Um, but we knew eventually we wanted to open up the platform. In order to do that, we were partnering with lenders. We became the lender because then we could control that part of the experience, which let's face it is like the gnarliest part, you know, yeah. the last mile part. Um, so then we opened up the platform, but that took, fortunately, we decided to do that about six or seven months before COVID. So we'd started actually working on the code because it's a pretty extensive lift from having internal agents where you can share all the data about a customer sure. to having external agents, which you obviously have to silo all the data, right? Um, from each other. So um, so we started building that in earnest six months before COVID. So when COVID hit, it was actually perfect timing because when we opened the platform up and we had our first, I, I can't remember how many, we had our first maybe hundred uh, brokers and several thousand agents in all our markets ready to go. Um, and we stopped, we had done a lot of DTC marketing. We'd stopped DTC marketing so they wouldn't perceive us as competing with them at the mm -hmm. same time. Um, and yeah, it worked out perfectly. And not a lot of people realize how many you're in 75 markets, but how many agents you're working with today? So yeah. say that number again. How many, it's how many about 120,000 now. 120,000. Changes 000. every day, you know, increases every day. It's about three. We we started going directly to brokers because we have a lot of longstanding relationships, Jamie and I both do from being in the space and trust. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we work with them to get access to the agents. They effectively vet the program. They then help us, you know, introduce it to the whole brokerage. Who does NOC prefer to work with more? 
individual agents or teams, like a team merger or a team uh, mindset where there's certain people doing certain things? So that's a um, not a black and white answer. So I think in the beginning, we just wanted to grow as quickly as we could and be as inclusive when we opened the platform up. Um, so we went after brokers and onboarded every agent in the, in the brokerage. And at the time, again, COVID sort of was forcing everyone to figure out how to get customers over the finish line in an increasingly competitive market. And I think as we, and then we went really wide geographically so we could plant flags in lots of different cities, uh, especially those where people were moving from New York and San Francisco to, um, and so we were, you know, very inclusive. We did after a certain period start to realize the teams needed more attention because they had just more volume and, you know, we needed to designated, we needed to designated people internally to those teams. So you have non-licensed people, we call them account success managers who can handle the agent all the way through the first application. And then you have a dedicated um, loan advisor who then can make, you know, they need to be licensed, we talk them all the way through. So I think we've increasingly optimized for the teams because they have a unique need. And actually, by the way, they have dedicated people on the team who can actually focus on on this as opposed to the agent, uh, even a top producing agent trying to like manage both their customer set and also, sure. you know, uh, some some new kind of probably more repeatable for yeah. your end. Work, work yeah. And I will say as a teams. business, right, as a tech business, you want to grow and you have shareholders and you want pretty, you know, and we were, you know, uh, on a path to go public last year, you need predictable um, repeatable revenue. And so teams, when you're trying to sh when you're trying to measure how well you're doing at share of wallet, it's hard to measure on an average agent who may do three deals a year how well you're doing because I don't know did I did they not send me a customer for two months because they don't like us or because they don't have a customer. Uh, so the nice thing about teams and top producing agents, we we sort of define that as anybody doing twenty deals or more a year, is we know you know if we should be getting a consistent flow of customers if we're doing a good job servicing them. So you're on a path to go public. You didn't go public. Why not? How much money has knock raised in yeah. total? Where are you at? Yeah. So we, um, we, around the time open door did their SPAC and they were pretty much the first one with Shamath, yeah. right? It was, you know, pretty well received. Um, we had, that was a, that was September of 2019, mm -hmm. no, 2020, 2020. 2020. Um, and that was pretty interesting to us because we were always focused on going public. We went public actually in seven years. We thought, wow, we could beat our own record and do it in five or six. And obviously you can do it a little earlier in terms of like where you are in your growth trajectory or you could as a SPAC, that was the promise. It was based on future earnings, like three to five years instead of one year. Um, and so we went full steam ahead on that, hired Goldman Sachs, it's all very public. Uh, we chose a SPAC partner, which is actually now also public. It was represented by Morgan Stanley. Um, it was incredibly well received. We just got, we went out in May and the market just basically for SPACs just suddenly paused. Yeah. And it had done that twice before, um, including November of the year before, but then it just like started ripping again uh, after absorbing some of the supply. Um, but it was clear by midsummer that it wasn't coming back. <laughs> yeah. And so we pivoted to a private round. Um, but it was a very tumultuous experience. I mean, we we built to be a public company, which means we added a CFO who we took out of Lyft, had taken Lyft public, had taken Uber public. Uh, we built a lot of regulatory muscle and compliance and treasury. And um, wow, it's expensive to go public. And it doesn't matter if you do it via SPAC or direct listing or- SPAC's uh, just quicker, basically. Yeah, it's right? faster, but it's just as, you know, uh, just as much overhead and administration and, and all that.
Is your business all over the place? You've got a multiple different logins and you need one place to transact your business online? Well, Sisu is where you should be doing that. Sisu is where your real estate business actually transacts online. Teams have upped their volume, their production in volume by over 107% by getting on the Sisu platform. Single agents, over 28%. I have the number one team in Connecticut per the CTMLS, and we use Sisu exclusively. Make sure you hit the link below, try Sisu today, sisu.co or the link below, try Sisu today. Um, so, you know, we built really fast, really hard, and, uh, and we ended up pivoting to a private round. Um, so we publicly announced we raised $220 million recently. In total, I think we raised $700 million over the course of six or seven years, um, debt and equity. Um, we used to use debt very differently. We used to use it to buy houses. Mm -hmm. That was a different line of facility. Now we use it to do new mortgage origination. We do um, I have a facility that uh, gives the our customers all the money out of their equity out of their old home interest-free so they can put the down payment on, so they can pay for the repairs, they can pay the old mortgage, et cetera. So seven years, about 700 million, you're in 75 markets. Yeah. You mentioned on stage, you're going to go deep in just those yeah. 75 markets. Yeah. Yeah. And at what point do you believe you'll have a, a profitability? Yeah, actually, so we published, I published a long blog post about that journey of, you know, going public or, or attempting to, and sort of, I put a lot of charts on how we did both from a expand, geographic expansion, plus like all of our top line numbers, GTV and revenue and gross profit grew all that entire time. Um, we want to go deep now. I mean, we we went pretty wide. Again, plant flags in all these big cities. Yep. Um, we launched with all these. We, we typically launch with like 10 broker partners and several thousand agents that we've trained or we call them lock certified um, to offer a home swap or, or not go, which is our first time home buyer product stands for guaranteed offer. So now we want to spend time to basically go deeper in those markets where we have awareness and we have, you know, transaction and penetration and focus on top teams. Because the reality is if you focus on top teams and you make them happy, like everyone else in the brokerage is going to mm -hmm. start doing whatever they're doing, right? Yeah. If they're happy doing it. So we share a lot of the success stories. So there's tons of depth. Uh, we will keep launching markets, just not like we did last year from 14 to 75. Uh, we just launched Seattle. Um, we'll probably launch in the Northeast, which is, you know, I, I want to ask you about the Northeast in, in a second, but before I do that, what, per, like what percentage of market share yeah. is, is reasonable for knock, you know, one of these big met, like a Seattle or wherever, <laughs> what's a market share number that you're shooting for? So I, I think we look at precedent. I mean, you know, I used to say when we were on the roadshow going public and there was a lot of noise and there was a lot of other companies in the space, you know, iBuyers, for example. So, you know, obviously Zillow was doing Offer still. Open Door was already public. OfferPad was going public. We'd have to explain to Wall Street, like, hey, like if you add us all up, including Zillow Offers at the time mm -hmm. and Open Door and OfferPad and any other innovative company in the transaction, we're all less than 1% market share together, yeah. right? Yeah. And despite having raised billions of dollars, right? So there's tons of white space. And now um, it's about 1% yeah. with Open Door, right? It's, a, it's just about 1%, I yeah. believe. You mean a total now? I'm if not you put Open Door in that same butt, like everybody? It was yeah. less than 1%. Then, but I believe now it's about one. It might be. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what their most recent yeah. numbers are. I know they had like um, they started in Phoenix, so they had much higher. You yep. know, maybe close to ten percent market share. I don't know what that looks like now, given how competitive it is. But you know, my my point was like there's ten, tons of headway, and we looked at the trajectory at which people, other folks had gained market share. Obviously, they were one of them. 
you know, Redfin, it takes something like seven, eight years for them to gain about 1% market share. In our early markets, it takes us about, it took us actually with the trade-in where we were buying the new house, it took us about two and a half years to get to 1%. Now it's taking us about one and a half okay. years. So the question is like, you know, what percent we get versus what percent ultimately just completely get digitized in some way, shape or form. And I think it's ultimately all of them. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine a world in 10 years where people are still doing it the traditional way. You know, if you think about the customer will age out to some extent, right? So our parents who are probably a little bit technophobes <laughs> and don't want to necessarily embrace uh, highly technical solutions will by then have, you know, you know, be, uh, you know, have moved on and, you know, be in a different kind of home, right? Whereas the younger generation of buyer. Uh, yeah, so I think for us, that. like, you know, what I, I think the, you know, we should be in the double digits as, a, and again, because we're going through agents, right? So we have, you know, if you look at an iBuyer, they're attacking the 10% of the market that doesn't have an agent because yes. they make you use their agent, their in-house agent. We're attacking the, the part of the market, not attacking, but innovating or disrupting the part of the market is 90% agent represented. Yeah. Like, you know, it should be that all agents are using some form of innovation on finance and, and digitization, not only for the consumer's benefit, but for their own. Like I said, if we're automating all of the, what you're now doing, picking up the phone and playing phone tag, and we can just push it all out, you have a lot more time to focus on like the, the value add that you really have as an agent with your local expertise and your ability to na navigate contracts and negotiate. And by the way, all the emotional nuance that is managing a customer through the process. And you're right on the money there. Nine out of 10 home sellers are using an agent, right? Yep. And so that's the lowest point in 40 years for yep. for sale by owners, the other side of yep. 10%. When the transaction is 100% digitized, mm -hmm. you can do it all in an app or on your phone and everybody is doing it that way. Are ninety percent of people still using an agent? Yeah, no, I, I think so. I don't think being digitized. I used to use the analogy that like we want to be Airbnb, and I have the chief security officer at Airbnb on our board, and it was a bad analogy because there's no <laughs> there's no middleman because you're you're renting for a couple of weeks or months. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not a huge high risk, right? And Airbnb ultimately guarantees if you're not happy, they'll put you up somewhere else, right? Mm. Uh, I said on stage, I think the agent and Trulia, we were all in on agents and. I don't think the financial advisor leaves the largest financial transaction of your life. I mean, today, after all the years that I'm in the business, and now this is the first time that Jamie or I were in the lending side, so it was a whole nother level of holy shit. Um, and I will tell you, I wouldn't buy a house right now without an agent. There's no way. I have the benefit now of knowing who the best agents are yeah, <laughs> and getting a know. referral. I was going <laughs> to buy in LA, and I'm uh, good friends with Mauricio Mancy, and I said, hey, who... I'm looking in LA. Who you know? Who would you refer me to? He's like me. I'm going to help you. I'm like, yeah. He's great. still he's still in, he uh, does. He's, he manages a huge book of business. It's amazing. Yeah. And I'm like, great. I feel really good about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned the Northeast. It's interesting. Zillow offers or any of these innovative open door um, knock. It doesn't. You guys aren't there yet. Why is the Northeast always last yeah. for these type of disruptors or innovations? Simple snow, man. Yeah. <laughs> the weather. Yeah. Right. If you think about it, um, I went to school in Boston, lots of friends in Boston. I see their Facebook posts when there's eight feet of snow and yeah. middle of winter, no one's buying a house when there's right. eight feet yeah, of snow. Yeah, the market, market definitely. It you freezes, can, literally. You can look at, at almost every single Northeast market in the last 20 years and it is like this. Yeah. Meaning, so if you're watching and you know, if you're listening, you don't, you don't see what I'm doing with my hands. The graph is up, yeah. down, up, down, meaning seasonality yeah. to the business, yeah. right? You can yeah. set your watch to the seasonality. Yeah. So we focused, when we when we launched Markets Atlanta was our first market and everybody thought we were headquartered there. We weren't. 
you know, we we had two two methodologies for where we launched markets. The first came out of actually Trulia in 2008. We mostly Pete was on CNBC every other week talking about real time search data as an indicator of where we were because you know um, all of the you know data from three months ago wasn't really helpful, right? Um, so we were talking about search data and we used heat maps to sort of show where people were searching because there was clearly going to be a turn where like the market went down so far and then everybody jumped back in because it was a good deal. Uh, and we were trying to predict that. And, and in, in doing that, we eventually had a full-time economist and we figured out there were 42 criteria through 08, 09, 010, which insulated a lot of the big, um, some of the big markets from the worst of volatility, right? So you had like Nevada, which was the foreclosure capital of the world, uh, sort of fall off of a cliff, you know, parts of South Florida, Miami, which was very speculative and lots of high rises um, just stopped. Mm -hmm. I remember being at a conference, I forget which one it was, and I was in Miami and there was like a crane sticking out of one of the buildings. They just, the bank just stopped financing, right? Because there was all yeah. a lot of secondary and speculative buying. But if you looked in DFW at the time, there was, you know, they hadn't seen a huge run up. So when the market crashed, they didn't see a run, a run down. Mm. And the reason was because it was a lot of primary buyers moving within the state, moving because their families were getting bigger or, you know, smaller or whatever. Um, and there wasn't a lot of speculation. And there was a lot of diversity of industry jobs specifically, right? So tech was there, oil was there, obviously. And so it was pretty stable. Um, and we figured out at truly like a rank order of like which markets would you know, could weather that storm and going forward, what elements of DFW were present in other cities? And we found out that like, you know, as people moved pre-COVID into secondary cities for quality of life and, mm -hmm. you know, um, more cost effectiveness, places like Raleigh and Phoenix and Austin, and um, that there were like 65 cities that looked a lot like DFW did when we started in 2015, looked like DFW did in 2008. Um, and so we had a rank order and we still have this. This is how we launch markets. Like what are those four criteria? And we have a power score that says which which cities rank highest. So they're the most diverse and we're safe. Our customers are safe in terms of like trying to do the transaction. And then we look at where's the sun. <laughs> so Atlanta was super sunny, super long. Yeah. And we went to Raleigh and Charlotte. And then we went to Texas and they went to Phoenix and then California. We stayed away from the snow as long as possible. We've now since launched in... Um, uh, you know, we're in Chicago it was a big deal. There was no iBuyer there when we launched um, because they avoided it, right? Yeah. The snow and other kinds of weather. Um, you know, we're in Detroit, also pretty cold. Um, so I don't know why we did those before we did the Northeast. I'm from the Northeast. I live just outside of New York City half the time. Um, but, you know, inevitably it is, I mean, Boston's a huge market. The tri-state area is a big market. Forget New York City, like even the surrounding area because people have sure. all kind of got pushed out to the burbs. Um, it's it's inevitable, and my kids tell me I have a 13 year old, nine year old, and they see my commercials online, uh, but they don't see them actually on TV. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, "When do I get?" I had to like take them to Atlanta so they could see me on actual TV uh, when we were doing TV commercials. He's like, "When are we going to actually see you natively in our own living room?" I'm like, "I don't know. It's it's coming." <laughs> but yeah. I always thought it was so. Snow is interesting. I always thought like New England specifically. I'm from Connecticut. Yeah. I, live in, I live in South Florida now, but. New England specifically, outside of Boston, I always thought it was because you, you could have a 100-year-old home, a 200-year-old home yeah, part of it. next to a brand new yeah. home next to like, I don't know, a thousand square foot ranch. So yeah. in South Florida, you can go into yeah. a community and be like, okay, here's 650 homes. There's seven floor plans yeah. 
and they're all 10 years old. So yeah. it's very predictable yeah. where the Northeast is fragmented. Yeah, well, I mean, separate Boston from that's North Northeast yeah, to, and, from and like the tri-state area. Take the because city out. You're right. Yeah. I lived in Boston for a couple of years and, the, and even from like area to area. Um, the, like in Wellesley versus like, you know, up north, it's older and like completely yeah. different. You're right. The houses are not um, com commoditized at all, uniform. And it's really hard from a data perspective to understand because we do take risk on the sell side that we're predicting how long it's going to take to sell, how much equity you have. And we're lending you that equity. Um, that is definitely a factor. I think about like the tri-state area in particular. Um, it has a lot of that same, like, you know, Toll Brothers literally is headquartered like a half an hour from my house where I live outside of the city and it, it's all Toll Brothers development, all yep. the big builders, DR Horton, they all have, you know, track home developments there. Same with New Jersey, um, New York, less so obviously in the city and some of the outer parts. Um, but you get, you start getting out into, you know, um, Hudson Valley and it's, you know, not the farms and stuff, but there's a lot of track. Long Island. Yeah. You know, those so are, those markets, it'd be easier. It would. Manhattan, yeah. no time soon because you just can't. Predict. It's its own beast. Yeah. It's its own it's like, market. It's like San Francisco. Yeah. It's, it's very unique market. Yeah. We were, we're able to do, you know, we've been in uh, Southern California now for six or seven months. Um, and, you know, Maurizio actually encouraged me to come there because I'm like, I don't I'm like, I'm not going to do multi-million dollar properties and take the risk. And he's like, no, man, 80% of my business. If you go to Maurizio's own, like on his listings on the agency, you see like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars properties. But he's like 80% of our volume is like 2 million and mm. under, right? It's sort of like the, the, you know, the average LA person buying a home, a little slightly more than average Phoenix person. Um, but the meat and potatoes up and down the south, Southern California coast is still, um, you know, a reasonable amount. It, we're not in yep. Santa Monica or Beverly Hills because those people don't need us anyway. Right. right. They have cash. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and those those are uh, moving a lot quicker yeah. and, and a lot more often. So what's next for Knock? What's the, the next five years look like? It, it, you think you're going to. I know we we talked about going deep onto these yeah. 75 markets. Is it going to look like 150 in five years with everybody digitized? What's it? Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of like, you know, for lack of a better word, grinding. I said to, you know, if last year was like an incredibly exciting, stimulating roller coaster ride for all of us, the whole sector. Um, and I think the good news is now we're all very focused on, I know we said it in the blog post, profitability and sustainability. Um, I, I said to someone recently, I'm gonna I want to run the boring company, not Elon Musk's tunnel boring company, but the actual boring company. <laughs> Make knock boring. Yeah, I just think it's now it's just a lot of like, you know, f executing and yeah. maniacally doing this because real estate, you know, it doesn't change as fast as we would all like it to. The uh the current conditions are forcing it. Uh hopefully that continues as uh, you know, as the Fed does what it does. But um, but we just want to execute and, you know, go deeper and sort of reach more consumers. I do think in in the space in general, you're going to see consolidation. Mm -hmm. We saw this, you know, in 08, the music stopped. Um, there were a ton of, there was a lot of money going after prop tech and, you know, sort of ankle biters, we called them at Zillow and Trulia. And literally, unfortunately, I think, you know, the music stopped and like Zillow and Trulia were really the only ones that came out of that. Redfin was already there and they came out of it. Um, there were a lot of, for example, Glenn had tons of like, you know, discount brokers, you know, online brokers. I don't know of one except him that sort of, you know, plowed through it. Absolutely. Um, I do think you're going to see a lot less, especially at the later stage money going in. So I think those who sort of have entrenched in us in power buying and open door and I buying, like you're not going to see tons of competition coming from them. What I hope you see is lots of completely new innovative things. 
um, and some consolidation from from the folks in the space. I'm excited about the transaction prediction because I, I from an agent team perspective, I think that would make their lives a lot easier. Totally. Uh, their business more predictable. I mean, how much of an agent spends just doing redundant manually yeah. data entry or, or marketing stuff that like, and that's why teams exist, right? Because they can get a more junior person who can focus on whatever it is, like showings or answering the phone or, or you know, entering stuff into the MLS, which is not a good use of a really top agent's skills. Yeah. Um, but all of that, that can be automated, right? Right after you spoke today, and, th- and then we'll wrap this up, um, Tamir, the uh, CEO of Real Brokerage, he said he predicts that 50% or about um, maybe maybe not that high. Um, he, he thinks another four or 500,000 agents are going to switch from traditional brokerages into, you know, real is very much similar to EXP, that new model of brokerage, tech power brokerage, that half of the agents potentially yeah. are going to switch over from traditional where do you see traditional brokerage in the future? I, I talked about this on stage a little bit, and I said the parallel was when I went to school in Boston, Polaroid was on you know 95 128 corridor. It was like very visible. It was a you know it was like icon, and they had created the digital technology for photography quietly in a building behind the main building and sat on it because they didn't they couldn't figure out how to get money out of it, and they, they didn't want to cannibalize their print business. And unfortunately, it got done for them. (laughs) And I said, similarly, I think, you know, brokers need to figure out how to digitize. Uh, And if they don't, I think they're going to become as irrelevant as Polaroid is now. But the the good news is there's like lots of companies like us to partner with. You don't need to be uh, in like, you know, the brokers should do and agents should do what they do and let us do what we do. Unless you think you have the DNA to have a tech team like Compass does or, you know, Maurizio actually bought Triple Mint the other day. And that was an attempt that was his like, hey, look, I can't recruit tech talent. But if I buy a company that does and can and then I get seen as legitimate place for top engineers to come, then that's a way. Right. Like that's that was a pretty big move on his part. And it's not for everybody. It was a double win because it also got him to Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He gets on the New York side. And by the way, like he that isn't one and done. Like he partners with us. He's a you know, he's a knock certified broker. Now we're doing jumbo loans. We're able to do more together. So it's you know, there's lots of option opportunities. But if you resist, you know, I think you're I think you're going to become just as irrelevant as Polaroid was. Right. I I sort of said, you know, I got to know the guys at place and I know the guys at side. And, you know, it does feel like there's a broker as a service feels lighter. Um, than the existing, you know, for both from their point of view, you know, being fully digital and the broker's point of view and profitability, uh, but also from the agent's point of view in terms of like they're entrepreneurs, they want to run their own business, but they don't want to do all the redundant stuff. Yeah, you broker know, so as a service is a good way to put it, right? Yeah. No no brick and mortar. Yeah. They've digitized that back office, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting way to look yeah, at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I asked Ben at Place a, a couple of weeks ago, like, you know, how his model worked. And if you don't know, it's, I thought he was a broker as a service. He's actually not the broker. He's just doing, he's broker agnostic. Yep. He's doing, but he's doing all the back office. He's giving you your marketing, your accounting, your admin. So you can just do what you do as an agent, which is be, you know, on the street with customers, getting, getting deals done. And like, you know, they're taking a pretty significant piece of the uh, of the profit, and you know the the promise is that the agent can spend make more money because they're spending less time on redundant crap that they don't want to do. And I thought, like, well, doesn't the broker do that? And he's like, they're supposed to, but they're yeah. not doing it. And I thought, wow, like, if you're a broker, it's one thing not to compete with like search and lead gen and you know Zillow uh, or even Realtor.com for that matter. 
Um, but you should be at least be doing the back office part. Like that's a no brainer. Like you're letting someone else come and add the value that you can obviously add. Yeah. I mean, before companies like place or side or whatever started doing that, it was really the emergence of teams that was like, wow, um, mini brokers, there's all these agents in the office that are not getting the service. So let's start building that out as a team. And now, you know, that that's moving at scale. So yeah, we, one of the first, we launched in, I think Phoenix was our third market and we launched with a Berkshire Hathaway broker who, you know, 3000 agents in Phoenix and Vegas and in Southern California. And he said, and this is three years ago. He's like, I think of myself as a broker of brokers. I'm not going to fight the teams and watch them walk out the door. I'm going to help them become mini brokers and do what I think I can do to make them successful. He said, so if you come into our office, it's like clusters of teams basically. And they're like yeah. mini brokerages and I'm empowering that, not fighting it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the way for all of this stuff. It's going to happen yeah. whether we like it or not. Just like there was a lot of brokers upset when Trulia and Zillow opened up transparency for consumers when consumers want yeah. more ease in the process, it's going to happen. Yeah. So. They're going to pull it through. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, and we at Trulia, when we, when we launched, I'm sure Zillow had a similar mindset. We did had no monetization for a couple of years. And the reason we didn't was because we were just trying to get brokers to give us their listings mm-hmm. and we didn't want uh, to owe them anything for it because we didn't want them to say, we'll give you the listings and money, but we, you got to not do this, yeah. which is effectively what Realtor had the problem of when with the MLS restrictions, right? And we said, no, we're going to build for the consumer, eventually monetize. You can participate or not, but if we build it your way, we'll effectively build your website yeah. <laughs> and uh, no one will come and then it won't matter, <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> right? It's got to be about the consumer first and then you know, the good news is they need a lot of help along the way and that's not going to yeah. go anywhere. I really appreciate this conversation. I hope everybody listening or watching has gotten a different perspective on knock. I certainly uh, do just sitting awesome. with you and, and speaking. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of agents just see something innovative, get scared out of their mind and write that company off. But you're working with over 100,000 agents yep. and you believe in the agent and just appreciate you sharing everything. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. You know, I was at Inman a couple of weeks ago and agents came up to me and they had their business cards and they have Knox certified agent badge on there. On and I like, they were like, this is a differentiator for me. You get me listings. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's amazing. Right? It's a little like, different than those three letter words that the board will sell you. It, yes, it actually means something yes, to consumers. Yes, yes. Because awesome. we're making you a cash buyer, right? And that's, that means a lot right now. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome.